Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's live 2020 election coverage, focusing on what organized labor is doing throughout the United States and sure all votes are counted and labor voices. Reporting will be based on contributions from the National Network of Members. Views expressed do not represent the official position. Welcome to the Labor the Labor Radio Podcast Network has over 70 labor-focused shows in four countries and serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. You can follow the conversation with the hashtag LaborRadioPod, where we are broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day. Today, we're going to be uh, doing a little history of uh, some organizing in Texas. And uh, second hour, we'll be talking about Proposition 22 in California. So let's just introduce everybody uh, going uh, to my left, uh, Brother Lance. Let's get I'll you on. There I'm we go. Lance, I'm uh, with the Workers Beat Extra. Uh, out of Dallas, Texas, we play it on knon.org. It's a talk show, Saturday mornings at 9. Tune in. All right. Evan. Welcome, everyone. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm with Empathy Media Lab, focused on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and I'm based in Hyattsville, Maryland. Hey. Uh, Brother Steve. Yeah, I... I'm Steve Zeltzer, and I'm with Workweek in San Francisco, and we do a weekly two-hour show on working class issues in the Bay Area, nationally and internationally. And we're going to hear more from Steve. On KPOO. KPOO, the man. We'll, uh, we'll hear more from Steve in just a second. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Jeremy Waugh, host of the Break Time Breakdown podcast out of Louisville, Kentucky, in affiliation with the Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, Local 110. <laughs> Thank you. You're as tired as the rest of us. Had to think about that for a second, didn't you? <laughs> well, I've, I've introduced myself different every time. All right. Uh, Alan. 
Hi, everybody. I'm Alan Weirdak from uh, Labor History Today and also the Meany Labor Archive uh, in College Park, Maryland. I am coming to you from Olney, Maryland, uh, in Montgomery County, about 30 minutes outside D.C. All right. We'll be back with Alan just for a sec for a couple of quick updates. And uh, that leaves Patrick. This is Patrick Dixon, also from Labor History Today, coming out of Arlington, Virginia. All right. And uh, Max, uh, Patrick is going to introduce you formally in just a second, but welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Alan, and I'm Chris Garlock. I'm with uh, Union City Radio uh, here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Alan, what have you got for us? So not too much has changed. Um, let me share my screen real quick. Um, the count remains, as you'll see, uh, Biden at 264 and Trump at 214. Um, it sounds like more votes are coming in, but not enough to provide anything beyond speculation. Um, it sounded like votes were delayed in Maricopa County briefly because of some rowdy Trump supporters uh, intimidating um, some ballot workers. Um, but aside from that, not too much to report. Um, on the labor side, I do know that Unite Here has a, um, a post-election uh, Take Back 2020 phone bank. And I will put that link in the Facebook comments. Um, that, that is about it. I believe, uh, Steve, you had something to report uh, out there on the West Coast, right? Yes. Well, I, I can make a brief report. The, Hold on one uh, sec, uh, Steve. Let's, uh, Alan, let's, there you go. All right, we're back. All right. Yep. Steve, you're up. Okay. So uh, there was a record turnout in California, although some Republican Congress people may get their seats back. Uh, the two ballot initiatives that labor was defeated on was Proposition 15, which uh, was a uh, increased tax on corporate properties in California. And uh, education and uh, public workers were, uh, were interested in getting that passed. So that failed by a big margin. So this is gonna add to the fiscal crisis in, in California um, as far as funding of uh, public services and education. The other defeat for labor and work people was Proposition 22, and uh, $205 million was put into uh, uh, preventing workers from organizing, getting health care, getting um, workers' comp, uh, disability insurance, uh, and Social Security. And uh, it was written by corporate lawyers for Uber, Lyft, uh, and many other of these uh, app companies. So that's a defeat for labor, and already uh, Uber and Lyft and these companies are talking, talking about expanding that nationally. So uh, the danger is, is that if, this, uh, if they write corporate labor legislation, other companies might do that, not just for uh, Uber Lyft drivers, but for uh, UPS workers, uh, for all kinds of other workers around the country. Uh, so it's a threat to labor. Hospital workers could be the same thing made in what they're doing is making everybody an independent contractor without the really rights of independent contractors. So, so this is uh, just jump in for a sec, Steve, because uh, we're going to spend a lot more time on this in hour two. But I, I, just to underline a couple of things that Steve said, first of all, uh, over $200 million. I, I know it's the most expensive in California history. It may be, somebody told me it, it may have been 
the most spent on any initiative in, in, in the country at any time. Is that, is that what I'm saying? That is right? the, highest the highest, you know, costly uh, initiative in the United States, in American history. And, and the other thing that Steve was referring to, and I think Bear is repeating and underlining, is that this is not only just a sort of approximate, you know, sort of, uh, first of all, it's not just affecting California, as Steve pointed out. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the proponents of this have already said, we're going to take this national. So uh, it's not just a California problem, but also things that happen in California naturally tend to migrate to other parts of the country. So anybody that thinks this is just a California problem, it's not. The other thing, and you sort of refer to this, Steve, but you know, this idea that, you know, there was a law that was passed in California, which the companies, you know, first tried to ignore. Then when California tried to enforce it, the companies, you know, then said, well, we're, we're not gonna, we're gonna close up shop in California. And then they decided to just go ahead and do a ballot initiative. This, this does not bode well for governance in this country if the companies can just sort of nakedly say, well, we'll just get our own laws passed, right? No, this is a big danger. And, you know, uh, one of the things that is important to understand is in California, the cost shifting that these companies have done has cost the people of California $7 billion. So the profits in the stock market went up $10 billion for these companies after uh, the victory of their initiative. So this is a real issue. Now, there are some drivers and workers who are saying that they want to fight it nationally. And there's a bill, H.R. 5419, which would amend the IRS code uh, to uh, require withholding of a payroll tax uh, on independent uh, contractors of certain large businesses. So this would be a national way of saying, you know, if you're a large business, a large corporation, you have independent contractors, you're going to be required to have to pay a payroll tax. So that would be a, get, a way of getting around nationally what what this bill in California has done. But this is a real problem for workers. Now, the other thing I was gonna report is that the Bay Area labor unions are having a labor rally on Saturday the 7th. All the Bay Area labor councils, uh, Unite, HERE, SEIU, uh, 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 AFSCME 3299, you, all UC workers. So this is gonna be a large labor protest at Harry Bridges Plaza in San Francisco Embarcadero Market at uh, noon. So we're gonna be trying to stream that live and get that out so people can see what workers have to say about uh, what's going on with the elections and the possible uh, refusal of Trump to leave uh, the White House. He may say, I'm not going, <laughs> which may require some mobile, it should require some mobilization of working people to say, you are gonna go. You're not gonna ignore the constitution, which he has a habit of saying he doesn't really pay attention to. Well, isn't isn't he making calls now for the uh, the electors to do the right thing and uh, basically go against the the state's vote? Oh, really? That's new. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, he, just... he, he wants that, and in fact, you know, his supporters are in some places they're saying stop the vote, in other places, uh, uh, you know, end the vote, continue the vote. Uh, I think he's creating a lot of uh, chaos, even in his court uh, plans, it, with different positions in different states, depending on where he is in the in the election. But it looks like he's going down, and uh, I think that in uh, Pennsylvania and, and Nevada and, and Arizona, I mean, his attack on on Latinos and and young people and uh, 
uh, has really backfired. In fact, he's, he even attacked Republicans in Arizona, the McCain family. So uh, it's really, um, there are a lot of people who are angry with him. So There's Steve. also a call, they're also making a call to get state legislatures to not appoint the, uh, the right people to the electoral college. This is all just crazy and, and, it, and it should be seen as, as a, a Trump attack on democracy. Uh, it's the it's Trump versus the American people. Absolutely, uh, it, it it occurs to me that there is some. I'm not sure if irony is the right word. It's probably a better word. But you know, Trump, of course, and his family have been landlords for years, and probably know a thing or two about eviction. So if we wind up having to evict him from the White House, I don't know. There seems like there's some poetic justice there somehow, somewhere. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something, but. Uh, Steve, thanks for that report. And if you can uh, share your, um, wherever it is that you'll be doing your live streaming uh, in the chat, then Alan will then share that uh, into uh, the, the Facebook stream as well. Uh, so I'll look forward to seeing that. And uh, folks should definitely check out the uh, Workweek Radio. It is, um, you, you, you cram a whole lot of stuff into that show, about four hours worth of show into two hours, Steve. <laughs> And it's uh, a lot of it is on uh, YouTube, Labor Video Project on YouTube. Okay, yeah, so sure we, that link. We covered a rally yesterday uh, where some labor speakers talked about the situation of restaurant workers and others. So I can put a link to that. And that would be great. Workers yeah. who went down south from the Bay it's, it's, it's always great just to find out what's going on out there in California. And I'm not just saying that because I was born in Berkeley and have a personal interest, but uh, it is California leads in a lot of ways. All right, we'll be talking more about all of these things, uh, but I want to uh, get to our special guest this hour. And to do that, uh, we will turn things over to uh, Patrick Dixon from Labor History Today. Patrick, your show. Thank you, Chris. Well, as, uh, as our conversation leading in has indicated, there are many eyes on the Southwest at the moment. And so I'm really pleased to be joined by Max Krockmolt, Professor of History at Texas Christian University and the author of Blue Texas, the making of a multiracial democratic coalition in the civil rights era. Thanks for joining us, Max. Thanks for having me, good to be here. Awesome, so um, as we said, there's been a lot of attention on the Southwest and the strength of the democratic coalition there. Many people have paid a lot of attention to the Hispanic vote in Miami, but uh, our, our colleague, Gene predicted a couple of nights ago that Texas would remain Republican, and it has. Looking at everything that's going on, what, is, what do you make of it? What is the state of the, uh, of, of the progressive coalition in the Southwest? Well, um, that's a good question. I mean, I think it remains to be seen. Uh, but, you know, uh, my, my friend Gene was on point, um, you know, that, that despite some uh, optimism coming from national circles, certainly the scene here in Texas uh, was much more uneven and uh, even terrifying, right? Depending on which parts of town you went to uh, or what neighborhoods and counties. Um, but, but you know, I, I think, you know, there's just so much going on there, right? The, the first, we start with the, the Latino vote, right? And, and we know that that is actually an incredibly diverse and, and unstable um, uh, category or attempted, attempted block. So that's the first piece, right? So what we're seeing in Arizona, right, is that young Latinos in Maricopa County, um, right, as well as down in Tucson, that they're, you know, they're, they've come out in huge numbers and they're doing a lot of organizing. And I think, you know, we can kind of draw a straight line from 
from SB 1070, right, to what's happening now in terms of young people there organizing and really turning out as progressives. Um, right, in contrast, there's something going on in South Texas, right? We see in South Texas that uh, Trump has done very, very well in 2020, much better than he did in 2016. Um, and uh, I think we'll be spending a lot of time trying to figure out why, why that happened. Um, and, uh, you know, right now we're, we're starting to know the what, but certainly not the why. And um, what we see is that, you know, Trump campaigned there, right? So that's different. Trump didn't campaign there four years ago. Um, but I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it may be that, that the cleavage has more to do with uh, education level um, among Latinos and whites, you know, both, as opposed to uh, purely about ethnicity or, or even class. Um, so, so, yeah, there'll be a lot of unpacking to go there. Of course, African-Americans turned out heavy for the president everywhere, including in the Southwest. Uh, it's not for the president, excuse me, for Joe Biden, um, including in the Southwest. And, you know, um, the, the, you know, black women everywhere represent a, a the, you know, really significant center of any progressive coalition, you know, within the Democratic Party and, and beyond. We see, uh, you know, that black women are supplying much of the leadership, much of the good ideas. Uh, they're doing a lot of the grunt work, a lot of the spade work, a lot of the shoe leather, um, and and you know that's paying dividends in places like Georgia um, right now. Uh, you know, and and so um, of course labor plays a plays a role historically and continues to play a role. Um, but you know, I I, I think um, we've seen that most clearly in Nevada, right, where Nevada is going to be called, I think, any minute for, um, well, maybe not. The, the, the news networks are getting a little chicken about such things. But, you know, from John Ralston's reports and from what we can see in Clark County, uh, I think it's really clear that Joe Biden's going to win Nevada. And it's, it's once again because of the strength of labor and Latino uh, and Black voters who are tied to immigrant rights and tied to labor uh, there in Nevada uh, pushing that needle. Um, so, you know, and of course, California is California. So, it, it, it's an interesting moment and, um, you know, had Texas flipped, we'd probably be having a really different conversation. Um, but I think either way, what we know is that um, the Democratic Party is one thing and uh, the, the coalition of progressives and uh, labor-minded people and civil rights-minded people is really something else. And, um, and I think we'll continue to see the tension between the different wings of the Democratic Party in the years ahead. A lot of a lot of folks in that area of the country, if I understand correctly, were more favorable toward the Sanders campaign. Is that right? Well, I mean, not enough to carry him in any of the primaries here, right? But yes, uh, certainly on the ground, you know, the social movement people, the labor people, uh, you know, Bernie had overwhelming support here. And, um, you know, uh, there, there's, I think, a, a vibrant and flourishing left coalition uh, in Texas and, and other places. Um, but, you know, what we saw nationally was that Bernie reached a point where he became a front runner and very quickly um, the forces of capital and of so-called moderation rallied around anybody they could find to stop him. Um, and they found Joe Biden. And it, it seems that uh, that experiment, that gamble might, might work, that he may be elected. Um, but right, I, I think the reason why Joe Biden didn't win in a massive landslide as some polls thought he might, as folks on the coast thought he might, the reason that that didn't transpire is that he hasn't had much to sell working people. <laughs> His record isn't all that good. Uh, and he doesn't have a clear politics in the way that Bernie Sanders does. And, and so, yeah, you know, 
I, I don't. Th I think it, we would not be um, chewing off our fingernails right now if, if Bernie Sanders had been the candidate. Um, and um, and you know, I think particularly in 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 places like Texas, right, where the Democratic Party has been irrelevant for decades, um, it's not going to suddenly find relevancy by saying the same old thing. Do do you see when you're looking at the these coalition builders in, in, in the present era, do you see any mirrors or parallels between the, the period in which you, you've written about? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to give you the whole book talk, and it's a rather large book, but I wrote a book called Blue Texas, uh, The Making of a Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era. And what we see, yeah, thank you, Gene. Uh, well, <laughs> you probably can't see that, but he's holding up the book. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Blue Texas is... Um, you know, it, 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 it kind of surveys the history uh, of how um, labor and civil rights activists on the left um, started organizing separately as far back as the 1930s and uh, over the course of several decades found one, one another, um, not because of any sort of natural affinity, but rather some mixture of, of desperation, self-preservation, and ultimately just discovering that coalition building could become their secret weapon in, in their separate struggles against Jim Crow, against what I call Juan Crow, and also uh, against uh, you know, capitalist domination of, of um, the Democratic Party and, and local politics. Yeah, there it is. Um, so, you know, um, that story, uh, it, it took, lots of twists and turns. It took several decades of trial and error, sort of experimentation. Um, but one critical development was when organized labor in Texas uh, under sort of new leadership decided that it would throw its own lot in with the insurgencies of, of the black civil rights movement and the Mexican American civil rights struggle. And, um, and these, that was a controversial move, right, at the time. Um, you know, we look back now, right, and everyone likes to wrap themselves in the civil rights movement and in Martin Luther King and whatever else, but all of these were very controversial, and especially the idea that, that activists would engage in illegal sit-in demonstrations or protests in the street or, um, you know, other, employing other sorts of tactics and rhetoric that many in their own communities actually found, um, you know, much less than respectable. And so um, organized labor, you know, went out on a limb and, and made a close alliance with the most militant African-American and Mexican-American activists, and they were able to uh, build uh, power together in the streets and also at the polls. Um, and they, they launched massive voter registration and get out the vote campaigns that ultimately did transform uh, Texas politics, you know, particularly at the urban scale, but really statewide. Um, so, so that's the quick version of the history. So are there parallels? Absolutely, right? I, I think what, what we see in cities across Texas, uh, and I think throughout the South and, and the Southwest, so going both directions, like, you know, Georgia is becoming more like the Southwest, parenthetically, right? It's becoming well, much more diverse. <laughs> so um, to just, uh, to get back to it, right, what we're seeing is that, you know, Black Lives Matter activists, immigrant right activists, LGBT activists of color, uh, the DSAs in the South and the Southwest are very much um, doing good anti-racist work and showing up. Um, some of the remnants of the Indivisibles and some of the other uh, kind of progressive groups that came together. And then, yes, labor, right, are all working together in the cities. Um, and, you know, Gene's at the thick of it in Dallas and some really good work happening there. But we've had successful um, living wage campaigns across Texas. We've had campaigns for successful campaigns for um, for paid sick leave and for private sector employers um, that, of course, our state government has since tried to preempt. <laughs> but, um, 
but the, the, the you know the organizing's there and it's vibrant and exciting and uh, I think really promising. Thank you. I think we've got Brian Young joining us from UCOM Live. Hey, how are you guys? How are you doing, Brian? Good. Uh, we're here at the moment, anyone who's joining us, with Max Crockmull from Texas Christian University. Alan Weirdak, I think you had a question. Sure. So <clears throat> I was kind of wondering, um, with, you know, looking at Texas and labor and the Democratic Party in the 1930s, um, Texas became a right-to-work state in 1941. So I was wondering if you could talk about um, kind of like what happened there in 1941 between the Democratic Party and labor and Texas becoming a right to work state. And then fast forwarding into the present, how, you know, there's conversations of, you know, trying to overturn repeal right to work at the national level and also at the state level. I, I think of conversations that are happening to repeal it in Virginia. So I guess, you know, taking the past and putting, into, putting it into the present, do you see any efforts from the DSA or from labor to attempt to overturn right to work in Texas? Uh, yeah, so, um, okay, there's a lot of parts there. And if folks could, could mute, please do that. Um, the, uh, so yeah, a few parts to that. So I think it was a little later than 41 in that, you know, Taft-Hartley is the enabling legislation that really makes right to work happen, right? And in Texas, um, the, there was a, a, you know, a, a virulent right wing, <laughs> politician and in Papio Daniel that that emerges during the war and um, and and you know bounces back and forth between the Senate and and being governor and um, and and so he really led the charge there on behalf of, of what my friend George Green calls the establishment in Texas politics right the, the the economic elites I mean the Democratic Party in Texas has been fragmented really since the 1930s right um, yeah, maybe even earlier I think even earlier um, but we see a clear fissure develop in the 1930s between the New Deal loyal liberal Democrats um, and the the establishment right of, of the Democratic Party, which, like its counterparts across the South, you know, are mostly committed to uh, to capitalist development and white supremacy. And and so they, um, you know, the the Dixiecrats, the segregationists, and and so. That splits there, and it's um, you know Texas and the the labor movement emerges rather rapidly in Texas in the 1930s, uh, and gains a, a serious foothold um, in industrial areas, right in the refineries and the steel uh, mills and the defense industries, um, right. So you know Jean's later employer emerges during World War II and is quickly organized by the UAW in the, in the aerospace industry. Um, and and then you you see you know a bunch of other sort of flare-ups of militant unionism. Um, so yeah, when you know even before the war is over, there's a serious counteroffensive on the part of big business to try to uh, roll that back here as as elsewhere. And um, and and it was in part because the the threat of the CIO pack was so intense, right? The CIO pack really moved hard in in well the predecessor in '44 and then '46. And they managed to capture quite a, a number of congressional seats, a bunch of local offices. Of course, it was interracial. <laughs> um, it was tied with the left-wing progressive party by 48. And so there was just this spate of anti-union legislation, including a mass picketing law that prohibited mass picketing and defined a mass picket as more than two people within 50 feet of one another. <laughs> so, um, so it was pretty bad in Texas, right? And Right to Work was one piece of that. And of course, there was a group, Christian America, a bunch of like the, the, the national engineers 
of right to work and, and a bunch of the backlash at that moment were, were coming out of Texas as well. Um, what efforts are underway now to repeal it? Honestly, I'm, I'm not real sure. Maybe maybe others may have know more about that. Um, you know, we're not going to see any changes in the Texas legislature as a result of this election. You know, a place like Virginia might be able to do it. Um, and of course, we've seen that right to work has had a really negative effect in, in Michigan. And, uh, you know, the rollbacks in Wisconsin have had a negative effect on the labor movement. That said, I, I think that, I personally think that the whole right to work question is a bit of a, a red herring for us. Um, and as a, as a movement, you know, uh, I grew up in Nevada and you look at Nevada and when I was a kid there, it was this right wing state and now it's this good left wing state and it's because of labor and because of immigrant rights activists and because of civil rights activists. And, you know, none of them had the protections of, uh, of you know, union of a closed shop, right? And, and in some ways, right, labor gets lazy when they have a closed shop and, and we've, um, we've seen, those uh, the consequences of that uh, in different junctures in history. So, for me at least, you know, we also saw, um, you know, in two thousand eight and nine with the election of Obama, labor just poured all this energy into the Employee Free Choice Act, and had no, has nothing to show for, for it. And so, I'm I'm just not sure that labor law reform needs to be our top priority right now. Let's go to Steve in California, and then we'd like to hear from Gene in Dallas. Yeah, well, I think, you know, Texas is important. And uh, I think that uh, one, a couple of things, my union, the CWA is organized in uh, University of Texas, there is organizing going on all over Texas. So uh, with with a right to work law. So it hasn't stopped workers in Texas from organizing. Maybe you can talk about the effect, the racist effect, these attacks, the, the massacre at the Walmart, what that's had on the uh, Latino population and uh, what the role of the unions have been in defending uh, uh, Latinos in Texas, Mexican-Americans in Texas, and has it changed the political dynamic in Texas? Yeah, good questions. Um, so yeah, I mean, Texas, of course, uh, uh, you know, is heavily Latino, right? Um, and uh, and the, the state government has been attacking immigrants left and right. Um, so you know, we had a, a SB4 uh, in 2017, uh, which was a new show me your papers bill um, passed by the state legislature, um, you know, that, that forced police to ask for identification and a bunch of other terrible provisions, right, uh, in the name of fighting sanctuary cities. And, um, and that was, you know, on top of really decades of organizing around the DREAM Act and, um, and other sort of incremental reforms, it was a real catalyst for, for organizing in a lot of places, certainly where I live in Fort Worth. Uh, you know, it, it led directly to a bunch of young people building a mass movement, right, in the city in a place that really hadn't seen one in a long, long time. And, um, and so we've seen, you know, really exciting, vibrant immigrant rights organizing happening, very creative work. Um, you know, we have here locally a struggle against the 287G immigration uh, enforcement agreement that our county has entered into, and that's an ongoing battle uh, that we're waging every year, it seems like. Um, and we, we just ran a candidate for county sheriff who did not win, but he was pledged against it and we did pretty well with it. So I think that the, the organizing will continue. Um, you know, when El Paso happened, it, it sent, it sent uh, you know, just shockwaves, you know, um, and, and terror and fear through many Latino communities in Texas and, and beyond. And um, you know, I think that organizing, we saw folks, you know, coming out and having vigils, but also very directly saying, you know, this, this election 
or these, this larger picture is really about an attack on our very being, our, our, our right to be, our ability to be here, uh, you know, in Texas at all. And of course, many Latinos pointed out that, you know, the border crossed them rather than them crossing the border. Um, so there's all of that, right? Um, and, I, and I think one, one area I've, I found really encouraging is that there has been uh, growing labor support, right, for undocumented workers across the board. In Texas, our, our state labor federation has always has worked very closely with the Workers Defense Project, um, which is a, a you know an alt labor worker center organizing people in the construction industry, um, mostly undocumented workers who've been very successful at fighting wage theft and also fighting for prevailing wage uh, ordinances in, in in Austin and now Dallas and Houston, and um, so that's a major step forward. Uh, you know, labor has achieved some victories. Unite Here has organized a couple of hotels in San Antonio that. Um, you know, are heavily Latino, and so that's another point of convergence. And then actually the state teachers union, the AFT, has been really wonderful at, about putting their uh, money where their mouth is and really devoting resources and energy into hosting citizenship schools um, to help people who are able to naturalize actually go through the process um, to, you know, doing the voter registration work, to hiring Latino organizers. And you know now the state federation does have as one of its top officers, you know, a, a dynamic young Latina organizer who um, who came out of that teachers union. Um, so that's really exciting to see, uh, you know, and it also has close ties with other immigrant and civil rights activists in the state. We're also seeing um, really exciting examples of black brown solidarity uh, taking place in Texas, um, and I think that's just another another area in which um, you know labor could potentially tap in uh, in terms of. Uh, doing that work. You know, I guess I would say the one, uh, um, this is a bit of a, a digression maybe, but the one area in which labor is sometimes too quiet for my blood is around Black Lives Matter. And I think that there's still ongoing fear about alienating the, um, the, the prison guards unions under AFSCME in Texas, as well as the police unions. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll just say the police union is not a union, right? It's, um, it, it's got far too much overlap historically with, you know, white terrorist organizations for me to see any possibility of solidarity there. Uh, but yeah, so big picture question, big picture answer. Um, you know, there's a lot of great organizing happening with Latinos and, and labor increasingly is showing up and, and participating and backing those efforts. Stephen Howe watching live on Facebook asks if religion and the politics of abortion could have a role. But first, if we could just go to Gene Lance. What do you think, Gene? Well, first of all, I think that the, the labor movement is doing pretty well on Black Lives Matter. Uh, one, has to, one has to really appreciate how far backwards we really are in Texas to understand the, the difficulty of going forward. Now, Max is not sufficiently promoting his book, but this is a, a really good, it's a handbook on this very, very difficult task of forming progressive coalitions under extremely difficult uh, conditions. And just on right to work, we talk about that every election, during the election, and then you never hear another word about it until the next election. Mm -hmm. Don't forget that right to work was invented in Texas. We were right to work before everybody was right to work. There was, they didn't even call it right to work, you know. It was really the anti-closed shop until the, the term right to work, which was a big PR coup for the bosses. And that term was invented right here where I live, right down there at the Dallas Morning News. They brag about it. 
they're happy with themselves for having done it. Chris, I think you also had a follow-up. Unmute myself. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to follow up, Max. I wanted to hear more uh, about, um, you know, I lived in Austin for a couple of years, which, uh, you know, some of the true Texans would argue is not really a part of Texas, but, uh, <clears throat> um, but I would like to hear more. Uh, it's more part of San Francisco. Exactly. Yeah. It's the, it's the, the third coast, right? <laughs> no, but about labor law reform, because people are already starting to talk about that. And, 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 you know, I am very skeptical, you know, it, it's, it's a sort of mirage or holy grail and it comes up every time people, you know, start to think that we're getting anywhere. Um, and, and I mean, besides the fact that it does, it looks like a long shot that we're going to get the Senate and, and, and uh, in which case, if we don't, you know, it's dead on arrival, but you seem to be implying some, you know, more fundamental criticism of this idea that labor law reform is going to solve all of our problems. I'd like to hear more of, of your take on that. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, it's somewhat um, poorly developed, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say, I, you know, right, just looking at recent history, you know, starting in the late 70s, labor has put a lot of effort into labor law reform and gotten very little back from, from, from all that work and all that money and all that lobbying. And, um, and it clearly matters, right? I, I mean, I used to be a union organizer. I know it matters when you can, when you can get, you know, uh, an NLRB election in some cases, or when you can, you know, uh, um, have, have certain protections, right, that you're covered under the act. But, um, but at the same time, I think what we're seeing is that workers, well, well there's, there's always been a lot of, I mean, back up, there's always been a lot of drawbacks to that, right? So by, by creating, the the regime of collective bargaining right it, it was always also about containing um labor militancy right and about directing um you know shop floor conflict out, off of the shop floor right and into the boardroom and into you know industrial peace so that production could continue and and then of course labor agreed to the no strike pledge during world war ii and that further sort of separated rank and file from 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 labor leaders and and just made the strike that much more of a hard tactic to use. Um, obviously, labor gained a lot from this agreement, from, the, from this peace, relative peace. Um, but I think the, the more that historians dive into it, we learn that this, this alleged compact between labor and management during the 40s and 50s just never existed. You mm -hmm. know, that, that they were always fighting tooth and nail and they kind of, for a minute, maybe bided their time and worked on some deep background work. But as soon as they were able to lash out and hit hard again, they did. And and, and really the whole time, right? The management resisted workers at every turn. And, you know, um, the labor law clearly still matters. Like we need better labor law. Um, my friend Lane Wyndham's wonderful book, uh, Knocking on Labor's Door, right? It, it really, it shows this in, in, in such clarity, right? That like the issue has not, has not been that workers don't want to organize. The issue has been that the, the state has allowed management to run roughshod over them. <laughs> and, and there's been no meaningful penalties. So that, that's all there, right? That's all true. It's a real problem and better labor law might help fix that. Um, I just don't think we're going to get better labor law through the normal legislative channels. Uh, even, if, even if the Democrats had a large majority in, in the House, larger than they will have and, and, you know, and a majority in the Senate. Um, and so I think you know, the other part of what Lane you know, gestures toward in the book is like, well, how else can workers 
be organizing and how else should you, what other shapes should unions take? Um, and how else can we actually build a working class movement that produces power for, for working people of all backgrounds? And, you know, right. And yeah, the teachers are another example, right? So yes, what we see all over America is that the teachers are, are walking off and, and building, building strong organizations, even in states where they have no rights. Um, and, you know, I think more of us need to follow that example um, and, and say, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm a covered worker or not. And, you know, um, and of course, Unite Here years ago abandoned the NLRB processes, right, to great effect. And, and so, you know, I, I think when we're talking about building shop floor worksite unions, we, we need to think of radically different ways to do that. And, um, you know, go back to some of the industry-wide or sector-wide strategies. You know, I'd love to see a broad-based organizing in retail um, that, that was, you know, focused on um, some, you know, the centers of our new cities and actually building power in, at the zip code level or the block level rather than uh, workplace by workplace as, you know, one approach. The work that Workers Defense Pro Project is doing is really wonderful in the construction trades because the old trades really haven't worked at organizing the new workers in those in those industries um so you know i i would say it's not i don't know obviously like to the extent that we're doing legislative work we should push for this but um but i, I i'm just not sure the democratic party will ever get us there either i mean i am really encouraged by you know the work that working families is doing uh, as a as a way to try to bore from within a little bit <laughs> and um and i think also the dsa and, um, and their sort of dual electoral strategies of, of you know, running candidates and also just trying to push everyone. Um, you know, why can't we have a Green New Deal party right now, right? It seems like this is the moment. Um, and, and so, you know, maybe that's where we should put our effort is actually mass organizing. Um, and, and again, you know, solidarity with immigrants and, and with um, folks who are fighting, you know, against fighting for meaningful criminal justice overhauls for abolition even. Um, I see that Gene has a follow-up, but I just wanted to point out, you know, we just heard from, from Steve earlier, you know, and the story of Prop 22 in California, you know, to your point is, you know, so California passes, you know, very good law to deal with the gig worker issue and, and the, uh, you know, the uh, Uber and Lyft were just like, yeah, we're not going to do it. So California tries to enforce the law and Uber and Lyft say, we'll pack up shop and leave. And then they're like, oh, well, we won't pack up shop and leave. We'll just change the law. And so that's when I hear labor law reform, I'm like, you know, if, if you've got companies who can either flout the law or change the law or leave, you know, then, then to me, and I think you raised a whole lot of good points there. So I, I, you know, I think it's not either or, it's probably and, uh, but I, I, I just putting all our eggs in a basket in the hopes that, that you know, changing the labor law uh, is gonna somehow save us. Um, you know, I'm, my answer right now is Prop 22, but anyway, I'll, I'll yield to Gene. Well, just let me say quickly that there's two other parts of that story. So before California passed that law, Uber and Lyft drivers went on strike, right? That's why they got the law. <laughs> And so now, in the absence of that law, they just need to build another strong union. Exactly. And then the other story is um, from Austin, right? In Austin, Texas, Uber and Lyft refused uh, to follow a, a law that came from the left, right? About just basic background check stuff. And they, they left town, right? They, tucked their, they said, well, we're going to take our marbles and leave. And, and Austin said, okay. And eventually, <laughs> Uber and Lyft came back, right? So, um, yeah, we, we can actually push them. Dr. Crockwell, you, you apparently think 
that uh, the Democratic Party in Texas would have done better with a more progressive uh, with a more progressive campaign, because uh, you mentioned that a while ago, and uh, Jeremy was talking about the success of the of the squad, which apparently you know a lot of money was thrown against these ultra progressive members of Congress, and apparently they all came through. And Jeremy had some other comment about it. Jeremy, what was it? Uh, so the 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 squad, the initial squad all got reelected pretty pretty easily. They, they coasted through and they actually added three more progressives to the team. So AOC plus three plus three uh, is where we're at now. And uh, I, I, it was interesting on election night, Ilan Omar uh, put, it was a, like a tweet, I guess, but she put a message out on social media explaining how much money was dumped against her in this campaign as opposed to her previous opponent for her initial run uh it was like her previous opponent spent like three million or something and this opponent spent like upwards of 30 million and she did better this time spent less money had more spent against her and coasted to victory by a, a lot the largest margin of any uh anyone running in the state so, I mean, it, that should say something. That's the, that's the kind of stuff that's speaking volumes. And yeah, maybe this may seem kind of incidental, but in Oklahoma, where I'm actually from, the, they elected to their state legislature a, a, a woman with, uh, with far beyond uh, the social credentials of, of anybody that you could possibly imagine getting elected in a state like Oklahoma. But she did get elected. And uh, so it kind of adds fuel to the to the argument that the Democrats might have done better if they had uh, had a more progressive campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think you know people could parse some of the numbers and argue right in in certain suburban districts, right? Is that gonna is that gonna fly? Um, you know, but but yeah, and, and you know, of course, mo many of the the squad members are elected from safe Democratic districts, right? But but yeah, we have Cory Bush now, right? Yet another wonderful member of Congress. I mean, it, it's going to be really wonder, exciting to see, you know, the ways in which these women are able to keep pushing the party caucus. Um, but I, I think especially in places like Texas and, uh, you know, uh, when, when, when we're not on the coast, right, the, the Democratic Party is so uh, embattled that there tends to be like a siege mentality around uh, among Democratic Party activists. And they think, you know, party loyalty is what matters the most. But it's actually the opposite, right? Unless we're in one of those rare swing districts, there's actually no incentive at all to have moderate candidates, right? As the Republicans have been demonstrating for two decades <laughs> or more, right? Um, so, so we should be primarying bad Democrats left and right, especially in the safer districts. And you know, that's where AOC came from, right? Her first race was was a primary race, and um, you know, by the time she won it, everyone said, "Well, that's a funny curiosity. This young woman beat this old Democratic machine guy." But nobody thought it mattered because it was a safe district anyway, right? This year, Republican operatives and right-wingers just threw tons of money at her opponent. I don't think because they thought they were going to win. They just wanted to, to kind of keep her in the news as a boogeyman. Um, and, you know, she, she, of course, has done wonderful work um, taking that hand and, and, you know, writing it and using it and parlaying it into, uh, you know, building power for, for, uh, for the left. And so, yeah, I mean... 
I think working families and, and whatever other caucuses we want to build, you know, we need to start looking at how to, how to fight some of these lousy Democrats, like Democrats who aren't, aren't serious about get, getting out the vote because they're in safe districts, right? We need, we need Democrats who are organizing to get out the vote year round, you know, and, and we need ones who are going to stand up and do the right thing. And also in a place like Texas, it doesn't matter how moderate you are, you're still a socialist, right? It doesn't like, the, the most right-wing Democrats in Texas are still called socialists. So like we might as well run socialists, right? And actually get something for it. <laughs> we're on the Labour Radio Podcast Network, live streaming on Facebook, and we're still joined by Max Crockwell from Texas Christian University. Please, anyone listening on Facebook, please continue to add your comments. We had the comment earlier now raising uh, the question of religion uh, as uh, as a factor within uh, the sort of current state of progressive politics. Alan, I believe there's a subsequent comment that you'd like to, to there present. Is a, there is a new comment, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. It's a little bit long. Um, Max, it is directed to you, and it says, regarding the 40s and 50s, uh, we also can't understate the lasting effect of the massive expulsion of communists from the American labor movement, especially around Taft-Hartley. So the AFL-CIO style unions um, in the 50s and 60s Forgive me, I just lost my place. Um, lost or abandoned class consciousness and the corresponding militancy um, in their relationship with the bosses. So basically, um, when the bosses are business partners, the galvanizing possibilities of class-based militancy through unions is totally stifled. When these bosses are considered enemies, the possibilities are great. Yeah, who, who said that? That is from Duncan Griffin. Okay, I don't know him. Um, well, yeah, so sure, the anti-communist purges had a huge impact. Um, and, you know, one of my uh, labor history professors back when I was an undergrad, she said, you know, that the, the labor movement in the late 1940s shot off its left foot and has been running in circles ever since, right? And so um, that's certainly one way of thinking about it. Um, you know, that said, right, I think that even as labor grew somewhat more, you know, more bureaucratic and self-satisfied, certainly by the later 50s, you know, there were uh, all of these possibilities, all these other groups of workers organizing and pushing the labor movement in new ways, right? Again, as Lane's book shows, but also we see, you know, we see the rise of the farm worker movement. We see, um, you know, public sector unionism. We see, you know, people really trying to, uh, to expand and, and, and do dynamic work and, and, it, and, it, and it working, right, all over. Uh, and my book documents this a lot too, right? That there's, there are these, these moments where civil rights movements and labor movements come together and really become one. And, um, and where labor goes beyond its historic uh, work at the workplace to, to really become advocates for the whole working class in, the, in, in their communities. And so, you know, to the, the last point, like, um, yeah, I mean, we, we clearly have a massive like educational uh, project, right, to help people think about their, their bosses in different ways, or the fact that they work for a living in a different way, and that that means that they fundamentally don't have power, right? And that even, even when it gets to our, you know, elections, that their power is circumscribed. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think I don't think we have to tell everybody you got to go hate your boss, right? But the real question, I mean, I, bosses are bosses, but the, I think <laughs> the bigger question is, you know, how do we how do we actually have a have a democracy, right? How do we actually build power for working people in a way? where our, we actually have a say over our lives, where we can come together and, and debate things and make decisions without having, you know, 
the collective boot of the bosses on our on our necks. And um, you know, we're people I think are are waking up right to the ways in which the police have their boots on the necks of people of color in America. Um, but I think you know we still have some work to do to try to um, you know make plain that that you know as long as we have concentrated capital in the way that we currently have it, we're not going to have meaningful democracy in America or worldwide. Well. We're coming up to the top of the hour. I do appreciate your time joining us today, Max. This is Max Crockmull, the author of Blue Texas: The Making of a Multiracial Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era. Do you want to give it one more push, Gene? Here's the book. Uh, Max Kirkmile wrote a very good book about how to build a progressive coalition under extremely difficult conditions and the, and the successes that can result. Thanks again, Max. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Good work and keep it up. And I hope to join you again someday. Thanks, Max. Coming up in the next hour, we've got talk on Proposition 22 in California. We've also got Rosemary Foyer joining us from Northern Illinois University to continue this discussion on uh, Labour, the left, and this, uh, this election that we're enjoying. All right, I'll take it into music then. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small By giving you no time instead of it all Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all A working class hero is something to be Working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school They hate you if you're clever and they despise a fool Till you're so fucking crazy you can't follow their rules Working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be When they've tortured and scared you for twenty odd years Then they expect you to pick a career When you can't really function, you're so full of fear A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Keep you doped with religion and sex and TV You think you're so clever and classless and free 
But you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be There's room at the top, they are telling you still First you must learn how to smile as you kill If you want to be like the folks on the hill A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be You want to be a hero, well just follow me If you want to be a hero, well just follow me Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's live 2020 election coverage, focusing on what organized labor is doing throughout the United States to ensure all votes are counted and labor's voice is heard. Reporting will be based on contributions from our national network of members. Views expressed do not represent official positions of the network. The Labor Radio Podcast Network has over 70 labor-focused shows in four countries and serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. You can follow the conversation with the hashtag LaborRadioPod, where we are broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day. I guess I need to unmute myself. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back. Hour two of our live stream post-election coverage here on the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Uh, good to have you here, Rosemary. We're going to get you officially introduced in, in just a second. Uh, I was very happy with all of my books, but now I, I see you you have way, way more than, than I do. So <laughs> nicely done. Uh, all right. So let's just do a quick introduction of uh, all the folks that, uh, that we have here. Um, and let's start with uh, with uh, Brian and uh, when uh, you introduce yourself, Brian, uh, just give us a little update on what you guys covered in your show today. Hi, everyone. Uh, so I'm Brian Young. I'm with UCOM Live with Chris LaGrange. Uh, we actually just finished our show. That's why I wasn't here for the first 20 minutes. Um, but we had a quick uh, election recap. Um, we looked at union members' impact on the election this year, how they sort of came back to Biden and, you know, now the election is going to rest on a whole bunch of strong union states where it looks like the union members uh, may be the difference in flipping the election. Uh, we also looked at some, sadly, some bad Republicans who got elected, um, including uh, Tommy Tuberville down in Alabama, who National Right to Work Committee has promised will be a supporter of a National Right to Work 
uh, law. So that's kind of what we went over this week. Yeah, you guys have been hitting on that uh, right to work law really heavy. So thanks for doing yeah. that. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, that, that brings up Alan. Hi, everybody. I'm Alan Weirdak uh, from Labor History Today and uh, the Meany Labor Archive at the uh, University of Maryland College Park, coming to you from Olney, Maryland, and Montgomery County, just outside of D.C. And uh, Alan is also our, our streaming liaison, so he's the one who, uh, who gets your comments uh, to us here in the live stream. So keep those comments coming. Uh, we're trying to be as interactive as possible. Gene, you're up. Gene Les, Dallas, Texas, the Workers Beat program. Thank you. All righty. Uh, and then, uh, Patrick, I'm going to save you for last because you're going to introduce our, our guest. Uh, so that takes me to Jeremy. I'm Jeremy Wall, host of the Break Time Breakdown podcast, affiliated with Sheet Metal, Air Rail, and Transportation Workers Local 110 out of Louisville, Kentucky. All right. Is that better? Still, uh, still, <laughs> still, still red. Still red. We got to. Got to get you guys into the purple zone at least. It got know. super red this this uh, this election, man. Not happy. But. Yeah, work to do. Work to do. All right, Patrick, uh, to you, and uh, you can introduce our, our guest. Thank you, Chris. I'm really pleased. We've been joined now by Rosemary Foyer from Northern Illinois University. Rosemary's the author of most recently Against Labor: How U.S. Employers Organized to Defeat Union Activism. And Rosemary is also the editor of Labor Online. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Yeah, and I used to be, uh, I run a cable TV labor show in St. Louis for years for, and uh, produced some fine propaganda <laughs> for the labor movement. <laughs> oh, welcome. Welcome to the latest iteration of labor propaganda, Rosemary. <laughs> so, we were talking in the last hour about uh, the Democratic Party in the Southwest and its attempts to uh, overcome the Red Wall in Texas. It's been a bit more successful, perhaps, in Arizona. We were, we were told for many months that the best way of defeating Trump and Trumpism was through uh, Joe Biden and uh, his brand of politics. Has that theory been validated? What do you make of this election? Are you directing that to me or to? To you particularly, yeah, if okay. you don't mind. Yeah, well, I wish I had been able, I was in class, so I wasn't able to hear the first part. Um, well, I, you know, I think what's been validated is that Biden was a weak candidate, you know, and that um, you, you know, we were told that we had to um, settle for somebody who would be able to, to um, bring in a constituency. And I don't think that's been proven. Uh, he lost. He lost the, at least the way that the Democratic Party uh, leadership has conceived of it as, uh, you know, they can gather all the, um, all the various constituencies of the party that they're targeting. And, um, you know, they lost some of that. And I think that needs to be evaluated, right? The fact that they lost uh, some African-Americans, some uh, significant uh, numbers of uh, Latinos didn't see it in their interest to vote against him. And that was, um, that was quite um, interesting that, um, that that happened given their predictions. 
So that's my initial response to that. I think that, um, you know, there it's a party that is, um, has lost its way and is run uh, at, at the top by elites. And uh, that has to be addressed by the labor movement. And historically, the labor movement, um, you know, has had varying policies across uh, the last hundred years or so in respect to its alliance with the Democratic Party. But it seems to me that, um, you know, if, if labor is going to uh, reevaluate anything, it has to reevaluate its, its, its um, alliances with people at the top. Here in, here in DC, we have many of the uh, leaders of labor, and as you know, they prize their access and they'll prize their access to the White House under a Biden administration. If the dust sort of settles as it will, uh, as where it looks like it's going to, we'll have a Republican Senate, uh, we'll have a mildly progressive uh, House of Representatives who will try and introduce some moderate progressive reforms and some of the characters that Brian's just been describing will describe it as communism, as socialism and labor and the left will be put in a position where we'll be called upon to defend Joe Biden, defend the, uh, the, the, the type of politics you just uh, described. Mm -hmm. How do you think I mean, I, you can already hear the, sorry, you can already hear the murmurings that, well, uh, we lost the Cubans in Florida because uh, of Bernie Sanders. That's, I don't know uh, what little I've looked at uh, from that sector is suggesting that they're they're going to suggest tame your tame your expectations and be glad that you have this kind of access. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a prescription that's been ongoing. Um, that um, you know, as we have this national leadership that seems to be. Um, uh, to value that access over trying to, you know, think about, you know, <laughs> what they're, what they really need to expand the labor movement. You know, if there'd just be a little bit of discussion about that, right? So for instance, you know, when I was involved with that cable show, we just couldn't imagine the amount of money that was being put into those alliances versus building our own media, right? Okay. That um, that it was, if we could just have a fraction of the money that they threw at elections for people who were, they, they themselves said, we have to hold our nose and do this, right? But we thought we could build the media. And, and that's really what's happened is that, you know, I, I've seen it with my relatives who are um, working class relatives who get their media through those, channels and are, are much more in silos. And if we could just, you know, fund our, use some of that money to fund our own media and, and, and uh, our, you know, also publicize our own history, we would be using that money much more effectively in my, in my estimation. Because when we did, I mean, when we did have that media and I call it propaganda in a positive way, you know, we really did turn things. We could, we actually could, um, at least on issues, turn the media in the St. Louis area uh, to covering our issues 
just by the fact that we were there. So, you know, I think that there, you know, it's a federation, right? You're a constituency and uh, we won't build a new labor movement through the top down. Gina, I think you had a question in Dallas and let's then go to Chris in DC. My question was, uh, what are the prospects for our labor party? Uh, also, I don't know if any of you know uh, how much money was spent on this election. I understand it was around 10 billion. Mm -hmm. But well, I, I want to ask our guest, though, what are the prospects for our labor party? Is that not the next step in progress in American politics? And, and what's the possibility of that happening? <laughs> um, it's very slim in the near future. I think people are disgusted. And I think that uh, no matter what, we have to see the nitty gritty of organizing and that that's the way that you might be able to bring about a labor party, is that if you start to organize and get candidates at a local level, you know, and I think um, we have some examples in history. I think of the Nonpartisan League, which, of course, isn't a party itself, but it really, um, in North Dakota, think about it right after World War I in the midst of a very, um, of a backlash and a reaction, they got a, a uh, you know, a North Dakota bank, you know, that, so that's an accomplishment of a period <clears throat> in which there was reaction. And I, Right now, I think there's um, the hopefulness I see in this election and all over, and I see it with my students, but I see it with people who are coming into, who came into the Bernie movement, the young people who start to think I'm, I'm on a lifeline here and I am willing to organize. That is the, the most hopeful signs we see in that direction. <clears throat> the less than hopeful signs that I see in that direction is the efforts that so far um, you know, it, it's not born much, much fruit of, uh, of galvanizing people to think that that's a possibility. Um, so I think you can do both. You can keep running people as Democrats, um, and keep trying to get third parties, um, into a situation where they're viable. But I think for most people who were looking at last night, at least at the presidential level, you know, there's not a, there, 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 most people didn't feel there was much of a choice. And I think that this system is gonna create more, more Bidens and, or sorry, well, more, <laughs> more reactionary and, uh, you know, more tepid Democrats and more reactionary figures in the uh, in the future and then you know the uh, for people who are looking at the reactionaries and uh, they feel that there's you know not much of a choice for them and they're going to have they're forced they feel to vote for them so you know i i think that's really hard to convince people and it has always been very hard to convince people in the early part of the 20th century the support for uh, Debs was extraordinary, but when people got into the ballot box, they voted along, you know, a system-wide line. And that's exactly what we're doing here. We can't underestimate how, what a constituency there was for Bernie Sanders, even though he was no Eugene Debs, there was still a, a significant constituency for him. 
and then um, he was not, um, you know, it, it didn't reflect. People weren't organizing and they vote along a personality politics. They vote along lines of fear, you know, so it doesn't translate into an actual viable uh, systemic party, uh, you know, viability. The party viability doesn't doesn't uh, get translated from the popularity. And I like to think, I don't know if you guys have talked about this, but think about it, you know, Florida, Florida passed um, a 15, um, $15 wage increase, you know, increase to $15. And at the same time that they voted for Trump. <laughs> you know, we, and I know, I mean, we started fighting for universal health care in the 1990s. Um, and there was, so, it was so popular in a time when people define, that people defined as neoliberal, there was extraordinary support. We came within, um, a handful of votes, probably 10 votes in the Missouri legislature. This, I was living in St. Louis again, um, of passing a single payer healthcare plan in Missouri during that period. And they were still voting in Republicans. And we, you know, so, it, you know, it, it, what people want is different than a party sy system uh, can reflect. Our parties, especially because we don't have, we have such polarized and more and more polarized system. It's over personality. And, the, you know, I think so many times people go into that booth and they're voting on one issue or they're voting on a sentiment. They're not really voting, you know, they don't have people organizing them. So we need, you know, before we can get to a party, we need to have some viable organization that brings them to a project. So that's where, you know, in the past, party systems have grown out of those organizing campaigns. Chris, I think you had a question. Well, Rosemary, I want to go back to uh, one of your really key points when you're talking about uh, the failure of, of, you know, labor to invest in its own communications. Um, and, and obviously, you're on the Labor Radio Podcast Network. It's this very loose network of some 73, 74 uh, shows. We're all doing our own thing where uh, this is actually the first time we have come together uh, like this here. Um, we're very excited about it. We totally, we have no official uh, support from, um, uh, you know, certainly not the AFL-CIO. They, they know what we're doing. They like it. Uh, we had Liz Schuler on uh, the other day and, and had a good conversation with her. I think they're very interested. Um, but, you know, they're obviously the Federation, the internationals, they're putting money into uh, politics. And many of them don't even do their own communications, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting to your point is that, you know, most of us spend little to no money to do our programs, right? Because uh, capitalism has provided us with the tools of production. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. And so we are using them. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to, to, to have a conversation with you, but also with my colleagues here, because um, this, to, uh, you know, we were talking about this even before the election. It's very clear that whatever the result of the election, I don't care whether Biden's there or Trump is there, uh, um, 
in, you know, uh, with, with Mitch staying in control in the Senate. Uh, and there's a real question uh, looking at, you know, what is, what is a progressive wing of the Democratic Party going to do? What, are, what is labor going to do? <coughs> labor is not monolithic. We're all over uh, the map. Um, and then another thing I want to throw into this and then maybe get you to respond to, I knew Fox was popular. I don't watch Fox, but I knew it was popular. I've seen the stats. But their numbers, I was looking at their numbers for the election, blew away everybody else. So clearly there are a lot more folks on the right than I realized, as evidenced by the Trump vote. But the number of people that are watching and getting their news from Fox News it's freaking incredible. I mean, uh, yeah, Jeremy, jump in here. I, I want this to be a conversation, but I mean, I, I was like, holy. I mean, I think your point, Rosemary. I was like, yes. So, Jeremy, and then let's. Well, let's to to touch on the Fox News thing, I, I've got a a theory about that because I'm not a Fox News watcher either, but I watched it during this <laughs> during this election because if they were going to start reporting, like they were the first to report Arizona, which is a state that. That, they got in trouble for that too, by the way. Right. They literally, but, but, literally, the White House called them and tried to get them to retract it. Yeah. I would but, have loved for me to fly in the wall in that room. So, but what I'm saying is, if if you see it going on there, then there must be something really significant about it for them to to have to to put it out. And so though, that was my intent for tuning into uh, Fox during the election. Um, so I mean, it's just a theory I have for for their high ratings. Because typically they're they're not that high, like their late opinion shows and stuff like that don't get a whole lot of views. And plus, this was something pretty important for people to, to dial into. So, mm -hmm. you know, they they might you might have uh, the casual viewer that might turn it on for ten or fifteen minutes has been locked in just because of what was happening in front of them. So, Jeremy, do you ever, I'm sorry, Jeremy. Do you ever talk to any of your members and they talk back to you in Fox? all the time all the time yeah yeah i i started noticing this with my brother um he's uh, a union uh member who was getting uh the, the ocaw the oil chemical and atomic workers mm -hmm. and that would influence him but and he was uh you know a guy who voted for um I'm trying. Um, Jesse Jackson, which is sorry, a brain freeze there in 1988, and Fox dug in, you know. So he was very much into, um, you know, he saw Jackson as this anti corporate guy. He saw that uh, what his union was promoting Jackson's campaign about. And then the style, I could really see it in the style. Uh, in, in which he would engage with me, it became a very combative and uh, negative style where we could we had been able to talk before. So that's also what's happening is this kind of discourse. But I want to say on the positive side, there were a number of people, at least in our local area, who came into, for instance, the Bernie Sanders campaign, who came through talk radio. They'd start doing this, listening to these podcasts. So you can reach, and I think producing interesting material that you know shifts the dialogue and doing that on a regular basis is extremely important and we have underestimated that you know and i i know that the the few shows that have been funded like by the steel workers 
they tend to be kind of reductive and not really open wheeling. I don't know if you've, you know who I'm talking about. I do, we do. And then you're being very kind by calling them reductive. We, we, I'll be just honest, a lot of the official ones are just plain boring. Yes. And, and I will say this about Fox, which is almost, you know, their new stuff is, is, is except that it's coming from a slant, but at least they're freaking entertaining, right? right. I mean, right. uh, I, I mean, I think there's historic precedent for this, you know, that this, this naming of names, let me just give you another example of how this worked in the media. We had this campaign is that is the lifeblood of our education unions in Illinois that was just run. Now, one of the things, it was uh, run by our uh, billionaire governor uh, campaign to have, uh, to get rid of our flat tax, which is by a constitutional in Illinois, we have flat tax, which means that working class people pay like upwards from three to six percent more of their income than wealthy people do, right? It's not progressive, it's regressive. And uh, he came in with this knight, as this knight in shining armor, but he said, I'm going to run this media campaign, right? And I'm going to fund it. Well, what did they do? They funded a campaign that was just nice guy, right? It's hmm. It was boring. It's like everything, our signs were, we want a fair tax. And then when all the billionaires started funding media campaign against him, he still wouldn't let us go for that, you know, populist. Yeah, it was like, you know, they should have put on a campaign saying, Ken, um, oh, I can't, I honestly can't remember the name of the wealthy guy that funded that, uh, Griffin, oh, okay. Ken Griffin. Um, he was, um, here's this rich guy and he's funding this, you know, they still made it this really nice Democratic Party campaign for fairness. And I just finished reading this book that I highly recommend called The Conspiracy of Capital. In the, it's a, a book that covers the period from the 1880s, from Haymarket to the 1920s, and about the appeal to reason, which was the media outlet for the left in this period. And they went for the jugular. They defined it in really personal terms. And that's what Fox is doing on the other side, right? They're making it very personal. But we don't have an equivalent on this side because, number one, the Democrats are tied to wealthy people, too, who don't want and they don't want to expose it. Number two, um, there's this kind of gentility liberalism that has that that attacked that whole sensibility of the appeal to reason as well in that period and that carries on today they are very afraid of a populist style campaign and i think that's that's what we can learn from fox i'm not saying that to be combative the way they are right i think that's repugnant but to to really lay it on the line and to name some names and to do some funny, you know, in the appeal to reason era, it was cartoons, you know, but our era could use some of that kind of labeling and making fun of <laughs> um, ridicule that was masterfully done in that era. So you could just pick that up uh, if you're if you're readers. But you ought to have him on. You ought to have Mark Cohen. His name is Mark Cohen on, and he can tell you about how that campaign was waged. Cool. Alan and Olney, did you want to add a comment there? 
Sure. So I guess this, this is going to backpedal a few minutes. But Chris, I was kind of surprised um, when you said that uh, Fox News kind of won the viewership battle because around, around election time, I was seeing these comments about OAN and how, I mean, I, I think a few months ago, Trump basically started telling all of his supporters to start, um, you know, watching OAN or Newsmax um, and kind of abandoning Fox News. So I was kind of surprised by that. And then doing a little bit of digging, um, I found... I think it was twice as much as the next nearest one uh, on election. I, I, I was shocked at, at their numbers. Yeah, and so I found this, I found this article where apparently YouTube um, is refusing to take down an OAN video that's essentially saying that Trump won the election. Um, I don't know if that's something we want to talk about um, at all, but maybe just like the role of this more alt-right, radical right-wing media that goes beyond Fox News because it seems like the more radical alt-right QAnon folk among like Trump supporters and conservatives are shifting towards a more radical news station that more fits their agenda. I'd love to get Brian to weigh in because, you know, Brian, your show, I think really consciously tries to be more in, in that entertaining um, you know, frankly, combative, uh, you know, smash mouth kind of, you know, it's, it's, uh, so I'd be curious about, um, the thinking behind the show and also how it's working, your engagement with your listeners. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we see is, you know, union members for the most part, the rank and file, right. They're not thinking about means of production and all that stuff. They, they talk crude, you know, they, especially, you know, your blue collar workers, they still talk rudely, crudely. Um, you know, you're going to be their sister when you're not on the job site, but on the job site, they're still going to say stupid shit. And look, we know that in a good year this year, exit polls showed 40% of union members were voting for Trump. Right. Um, you know, in a bad year, like four years ago, we were up at the mid to high 40s. So there was something that drew them to it. And part of it is he acted like them. He behaved like them. Um, you know, and when we talk about sort of an elitist Democratic Party, that's really what they're going against, right? They like people like Tim Ryan. Um, and in some cases, you know, you can make the argument they like Joe Biden because Joe Biden talks their way. He has a similar experience to them. Um, you know, and so what we find is the people tend to, you know, react well to it. Um, I mean, we were running ads in swing states through our political action committee. We got really good reaction from it because we weren't putting out what the AFL was putting out. We were sort of putting out the same message, just in a different way, right? Like we were including clips of Trump saying that windmills are going to cause cancer. That's not something that the IBW or the AFL is going to put out, even though <laughs> They hear it and they're like, yeah, right on. Like, please do that. Um, you know, we put out that Trump was supporting a national right to work bill, right? But if you go on YouTube, you can find 10 other unions that put that out, but we put it out in a different way that was able to get more of a reaction behind it. Um, and I do think, you know, I personally have always been somebody who thought we needed a Fox News on the left that like, and if you look, MSNBC, when they were really big between sort of 2006 and 2008, the Keith Olbermann style, 
tried to be that. Um, but now they've really gotten away from it. And they've really gone to sort of the intellectual, the Christie's types, right? Who, like, they're going to bring on the organizers of Fight for 15 to talk about it on a top level, but not talk about it on a worker level. Um, and not really talk about it in a way that we would understand. They're going to, or that our members were going to understand. They want to talk about it on that top, like, socioeconomic, you know, how do we control the means of production, you know, and that stuff. And those guys, those are the guys also, like, you know, our members are the people who are in a labor union, and then they say, I don't want socialism. And we have to, you know, I do think that's something we have to remember when we're talking to our members, is that, you know, when they vote their pocketbooks, they vote the right way, but too often liberals get into this intellectual college discussion, and we're trying to have a college discussion with people who didn't graduate the 11th grade, who don't have an economic degree. Um, and that's what, on UCOM Live, we, um, we really try to push that sort of normal message you know we don't try to go highbrow we don't try to go boring <laughs> we try to entertain a little bit they're 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 rude rosemary i mean i mean i listen i listen to that show sometimes i'm like oh my god but and 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 it, it is uncomfortable you know it's uncomfortable but it, it i think it is something that it is the way that people talk yeah to, rosemary you should respond to that yeah i mean well i grew up in a household where my mother you know, curse as like a sailor, you know, <laughs> everything was crude and rude. So I, that's, that's the environment I grew up in. And I think, um, yeah, so I'm, I, I have nothing to say about it. I, I think it goes along with what I was saying, which is that you've got to really make things, uh, paint a picture for people. Right. And that's, that's what Fox does. And I, you know, my brother saw that picture and he did respond. The idea that these people are elites and even, you know, global warming is an elite scheme. Uh, there's, you know, but there's nothing on our side, on uh, labor side that, that frames things in a way that makes it very clear. Um, so I'm at, for whatever works, I guess I would say, I, you know, I think that uh, the history w is backing you up. You know, this is not something. Now, this was a, a different era of the era I was referring to where it was in print and you, you weren't allowed to be, I think, as crude and rude as you're referring to there. But um, my point is this, that we need a lot more of these shows that give people different views, right? We have to have some way of getting through. We had instruments before the unions were the instrument, right? That got people to vote um, in uh, a pro-labor direction and, and that's eroding. So what else do we have? We have to have means of communication. We got them. Thank you for joining us today, Rosemary. We do appreciate it. Um, hope you can join us again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks. I'll be listening. Thank you, Rosemary. Great having you on. Thanks. Bye. All right. Uh, that was really a good, good discussion uh, about this network. So that was really cool. Uh, and now we get to talk about Proposition 22, which has just really gotten me uh, seriously pissed off, Brian. <laughs> we can. We don't have the FCC looking down our throat, so we can say whatever the hell we want. Uh, and so we're joined by Katie Wells. Katie, it's been so long. I, I've, I've had you on uh, my radio show a bunch of times, but um, this is really nice to be able to see you here. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
So uh, I really wanted to have you on because I know you've done studies on this, uh, you know, this whole issue with, with the uh, gig workers, Uber drivers, and, and we've talked about it. We had uh, Steve Zeltzer on who does the Workweek show out of California. They've been covering uh, this Proposition 22. I came to this late just a couple of weeks ago, actually when Steve had done a, a show on it, and I thought, well, it was just one of these California propositions really did not have any idea of, first of all, how big it was, uh, literally $205 million that they spent on this, but also the incredible national ramifications. Uh, they're quoted in the Times today saying, now we're going to take this national. So can you just, uh, this is not a happy ending story, but hit us with it. Well, but let me let me offer this, Chris. Um, I'm going to push back on that, okay? okay? And we'll say one happy thing, right? You can say as many happy things as you want. <laughs> All right, I'll put it this way. Look, three years ago, there was in the U.S., to my knowledge, no organizing around any kind of platform workers. Okay. And so what I don't want people to miss, while it is important that Prop 22 succeeded, I think what's more important, right, as you point out with the $205 million comment, right, is about how it passed. That's really the story we need to know. There was a comparison that somebody made online, like, oh, this is the Prop 13 of 1978 that's gonna portend all kinds of changes. And I don't think that's the case. This was not a populist push. This was a top-down corporate mm -hmm. civil disobedience that happened because um, the su state Supreme Court of California and also the assembly passed a bill that a company did not like. Um, so I think the happy story we have to keep in mind is the fact that there was this amazing labor organizing that came out of LA with the Rideshare Drivers United three years ago, and that has birthed in some way sort of the first global picket line last year, and has sort of given rise to a solidarity app that has helped groups in Chicago, Boston, DC, try to sort of imagine what does organizing look like in this platform workplace. Well, and two, I was thinking, Katie, that, you know, 58% is not exactly, you know, a resounding endorsement. I mean, it's certainly plenty good enough to win, um, but it certainly shows, I mean, they had to spend over $200 million to get a 58% win. The other thing was I had, uh, Bill Fletcher was on my uh, PFW show today, and I asked him about this. Uh, and actually, he, very similar to you, he was like, look, they just need to do what the uh, taxi drivers in New York did. You know, and they said they need to get Desi and get her out there and, and, and start organizing around this issue. Don't, you know, and I, I thought that was a very uh, interesting and, and positive uh, approach to it. So I wanted to get your reaction to that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they need Desi out there. I think there are tremendous leaders already in California that have you know, I mean, in not, you know, um, without New York support, um, but there's been sort of incredible things that have been there. And what they've really been doing, right, is building alliances with domestic workers, with, you know, trying to tell stories about agricultural workers and seeing the ways in which sort of this platform worker, while shiny and new, is really no different than these precarious workers that have been cut out of labor law for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, if you imagine sort of California's birthing the real agricultural temp worker, maybe it's apropos that we're sort of going to see all these battles around the gig worker. Well, and you're just reminding me that one of the shows on our network is an entire podcast, which is, you know, about, you know, gig, uh, gig work. Right. And so to me, that really says that this is something that's getting more attention. Uh, Brian, let me let's get you in the, on this. Yeah, so. I actually drive Uber uh, here in New York and I'm in a lot of the Uber groups and 
And do you think one of the problems that the labor movement has failed to uh, understand is there's really two sets of workers within at least rideshare, for example. You have your full-time workers, your people who are doing it uh, all the time, but then you have a lot of people who do it part-time, do it on the weekends, do it for extra money like I do. And what I saw in a lot of the rideshare groups is that a lot of the full-time drivers are very supportive of organizing. They're very supportive of passing these new regulations, but you have these part-time workers who basically are hearing it from Uber and Lyft saying, you know, if you pass this proposition, we're gonna fire you. We're gonna cut all the part-time workers out and we're only gonna go to full-time workers and stuff like that. And there was a big backlash, um, you know, and as this movement goes national, um, I think that maybe we need to start coming up with an idea because the independent contractor rule doesn't work. Um, it gets abused by businesses to take advantage of workers. But when we talk about an app where I can log on today and not work for three weeks, creating a full-time employment level like we've had for decades also doesn't work. And they maybe need to come up with a new regulation, a new system for these these part-time workers, these gig workers. Uh, Katie responds because I, I, somebody was asking me about that, uh, the, the, uh, what the uh, drivers thought. And, and thank you for that, Brian, because I, I figured the drivers probably had different opinions. So that's really interesting to hear. Uh, Katie, your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Brian, for that comment. Um, so that's actually something that we, so I've been doing a longitudinal study about Uber drivers in the just the DC area for the last four years. Um, and that was one of the things that we walked into this study with was an idea that there was going to be a clear cut division between part timers and full timers. And what's really hard and interesting about it is that we couldn't find that on the ground, that there were those stories that circulate and we thought, oh, there'd be some kind of division that would be useful for making sense of priorities or driving patterns or politics or beliefs. And we can't find that. And I don't think that my colleagues who have done studies of other drivers have similarly found it. So that, that argument is sort of um, being challenged at some, to some degree, right? Um, but that being said, one of the reasons why we were trying to figure out why that division doesn't work, it may be because some of the costs and some of the, um, some of the difficulties of the workplace are just harder to realize and harder to figure out. Like, I don't know how you keep track of your you know, budget sheets, but it becomes really messy when you're also sort of have a car for other purposes and things like that. Um, and there's also sort of the Titanic story, as I would call it, right? Which is that for people who are doing this part time, there's very little interest in trying to organize the workplace. They don't have a lot vested in it, but they're also been told, and I think more readily adopt the idea that the Titanic is sinking, that the automated vehicles are coming and why unionize the engine room. Yeah, I think that's definitely, I think that's definitely something. And I think for a lot of the part-time workers, they don't see it as that important because they're just like, if it, if it becomes too big of a hassle, I'll just do something else. Um, and that, but that's a huge impact to organizing. And same thing, like if you're in a business where they can just start approving 10,000 people at a time, that makes it very difficult. And right. kick people off because Uber has the ability to just kick you off the app. Right, so Brian, you you totally hit the nail on the head. And I have a paper published recently this year about that very issue that you point out about the absolute difficulty of organizing in a workplace that you can't see. 
Right. And it has such incredible power and balances between the worker and the company, but also as we found between the company and the policymakers. Right. The policy is really hard to regulate, you know, an entity you can't see. Uh, Jeremy, I know you've got some opinions on this subject. Yeah, so there's a lot going on here. Um, but but to the point that that you all were just talking about, that it's that's a that's a real trick with organizing in any industry, right? Is the the people at the top, the the business owners and corporations, they're all on the same team, they're all on the same page, pushing the same message. The people at the bottom, it's everybody's got their own individual um fears, needs, whatever. So, so trying to get that voice unified to fight people that are coming at you with a unified message already is, is one of the big hurdles. Um, I saw like, I did, man, my brain's going a million miles an hour with this. Cause I just did a, a, a podcast about prop 22 and how, and why we here in Kentucky could be paying attention to this because as the times, everything's changing, right? Like technologies, uh, creating different um, different avenues to make money, like with gig work, the digital platforms and stuff. Um, it, like, the way we operate, just look at this. I mean, we've got people from all over the country right now sitting together, having a conversation, looking at one another. Like things are changing, and the 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 way this all happened in California is like it's like a new playbook for for exploiting workers across the country, the way they passed uh, the proposition, the way they were able to hold the money, the way they were to have, uh, essentially, every time you log into the, to the app to start your, your hours, you're in a, a, uh, a captive audience meeting because they're asking you with vote yes on Prop 22 and, and all that stuff, right? So they're pushing their message every time you're working, like every minute you're working. Um, so like, I'm, I'm, I just, watching how this all developed and seeing it like you uh chris you said it earlier it won by 58 percent. i think that's uh, right Is that right katie like 58%. and you said you know seems like like a lot of money and effort to only get 58 percent. well the part of it the, the another interesting element to that bill was uh in california it's uh it's a state rule that if if a ballot measure pat the only way you can uh, reverse a ballot measure is with another ballot measure unless it, it, it specifically says it in the bill or in the proposition. And if it does, normally it's a two-third majority to reverse it. They added seven-eighths. Seven-eighths. Seven-eighths majority to overturn this. So it's like, it's this thing's almost bulletproof. So Katie, I want to go back to you because, uh, you know, it, it, it did sort of just boggle my mind. And I, I'm really glad to hear, because I, I was thinking about Proposition 13, um, which probably a lot of you don't remember. It was it was quite a while ago, but it was really huge. And it really did shape, I think, a whole generation or more. Uh, and really was sort of the, the mother of, a, of, of all of these propositions out of California, right? Right, Katie? I mean, it really uh, was very seminal. And, and this kind of had that feeling. So I'm very happy to hear you disabuse me of that notion. Oh, look, I couldn't have predicted Trump in 2016, so <laughs> take any of my predictions about this with a grain of salt. No, but I, 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 I do, what, what does resonate with what you were saying is, is that Proposition 13, for all of its 
badness, it, it was a groundswell thing. It really, there was a lot of popular, that is true. And it is also very true, you know, clear that this thing was totally from above and it was the best proposition that money could buy. Um, so I think there, that that's a fair analysis. Um, but I think Jeremy's got a good point. I didn't realize about the mechanics of it, you know, that, that uh, you know, it is kind of bulletproof. I wanted you to talk a little bit about though, what, you know, they are literally talking about, okay, now we want to take this national. What, what do you think of the chances of that? Um, that? That seems like a longer shot, right? I don't know. I mean, I've been following Uber's work in DC over the last 10 years. And what we can say is that we really think that they honed their batting skills against regulators here. Mm -hmm. When we look at what they've done in DC, in terms of testing out legislative strategies and consumer advocacy campaigns, right? Remember when clicktivism was new? Um, their data collection protocols and their very um, specific racial justice narratives. We can see all of that here. And what we know about what they've done when they lose is they go a different route. And you can think about the Austin, Texas example of 2015, when Austin city um, lawmaker said, hey, we wanna make sure there's background checks and fingerprinting, Uber and Lyft pulled out. A year later, they got it overrode. What's the word, overrode, overridden? I think it was overridden. They got it overridden, they got it undone right. by doing the state preemption, right? And really laying, and so state preemption is something that has already sort of been happening in something like 44 states. And when I say state preemption, I mean that um, companies like Handy and other platform companies have tried to address the misclassification question through states, so not to let the cities make the decision. To say that if you got employment through a platform app, you are automatically an independent contractor. And so to me, it's like Prop 22 is part of this larger wave. It's the extension of the Cali services. It's a temp worker of the 80s and the 90s, right? And so the fact that they're going federal, I don't think it's sort of some like apex. It might be like the pretty shiny version of it, but we've seen a steady, you know, sort of fight against these misclassification questions for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and so I expect to see, despite the effort of, despite the, you know, failure of Prop 22, I expect to see replicate AB5 laws um, attempted in Massachusetts, in Philadelphia. I've had calls this summer with DC lawyers who are interested in thinking about it with OAG here. Um, so I don't think that that it's dead. Huh. Yeah, I, I guess what I worry about, though, is that it does kind of, it has a chilling effect in some ways, you know, when, when you see somebody who's, you know, who are willing, I mean, the thing that I was sort of blown away, you know, was that they just sort of ignored it, you know, they were like, well, we're not going to pay attention, which is sort of a, you know, classic Silicon Valley kind of thing. We, we're rich, we don't need to worry about anybody. Um, and, and just ignoring it, sort of thumbing their noses at it, and then spending 200 plus million dollars to get it overturned, you know, it does, it does make folks think twice. And I guess one of the things I'm wondering about, I vaguely remember that there's been a lot of activism around this in, in Europe against some of the same, uh, same actors. Are there lessons that we can learn from there? Um, I mean, some of the lessons have been about winning smaller things 
mm-hmm. about healthcare subsidies, about vacation days. There are exciting things afoot around getting access to data. And you can think about data as something that workers produce. So they mm. want to have access, but that's through a European data law, um, which doesn't have great parallels. But um, what are the lessons? That's a good question. Right. Um, other questions from uh, from other folks here uh, who are following this issue. One of the things, Katie, is that all of us have shows, so I think yeah, everybody's probably going to be calling you <laughs> to come on their show to talk about this, which is which is I'm sure fine. Good, we should, right? Well, and this is honestly, this is part of the idea of the network, and and this is what we're talking about with our last guest, Rosemary, which is, you know, that a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is either not talked about for, you know, the labor stuff that we're talking about is either not talked about or when it's talked about, you know, the frame that they give it, right? Which is, a, you know, a whole different frame, top down, the boss's framework. Uh, and we don't get to talk about it in the way that we want to talk about it, you know, from the movement point of view. And so that's one of the reasons that we're looking at in this network is how can we begin to create these kind of conversations and, and just change the frame, to be honest. Um, so, uh, brother, brother Evan. Hi, Katie. Thanks for joining us this evening. I have a question more about the students you're teaching, and I'm very interested in getting more people interested in labor news and labor history, labor policy. And I went through a lot of schooling and didn't have much exposure to labor history and, and labor policy and labor studies. Could you just talk a little bit about some of the students at Georgetown that uh, you're teaching and how they're absorbing it, some of the lessons. Yeah, thanks for that, Evan. Um, so right now I hold a postdoc position at Georgetown that does not involve teaching. I have been working with some student interns, one of whom used to drive for Uber um, and experienced sexual assault um, yeah. as a result of that yeah. work on the platform. Um, and another student I was able to take to Philadelphia for a um, urban platform meeting, which was lovely because there were folks from LA Rideshare Drivers United, as well as the UK Union for Platform Workers. Um, those are two examples of ways that I've engaged with students, but not in the classroom. Um, one really difficult thing about um, connecting with students around these issues, at least when I found when I was teaching at George Washington University, um, and I'm trained as a geographer, just to be upfront. Um, and when I was teaching an economic geography class, it was very difficult to get through the labor section in part because many of the students, um, actually, like, I mean, it must've been all but two had ever worked a minimum wage paying job. Wow. Um, I, I just wanna be clear. So when you say all of them or none of them? All but none, I'm sorry. Of the class, only right. two had worked a minimum wage okay. paying job. I'm sorry, but did I say the reverse? I just wasn't clear, but and this was- a It was hard to talk about labor issues. It was hard to sort of see themselves as connected to workers in Bangladesh or in other places that were part of sort of commodity chain stories, right? As an economic geographer, I wanna talk about places and I wanna talk how we're connected or not connected and uneven development. Um, but it's very hard to connect if you haven't labored in a way that allows you to clean toilets at Office Max or something. And this was at GW? Yeah, no, my wife teaches at GW and I know exactly what you're talking about. She's had the same issue with people who just have no idea about, about these kinds of issues. So, but 
um, it's a lot, a lot of teaching moments, <laughs> teachable moments. So, um, all right, thanks for clarifying that. Uh, Patrick, you had a question or comment. Thank you, Chris. Uh, one of the things that seems interesting, so we look at Uber and we look at Lyft and they have a whole new model of employment. So it seems uh, when it comes to a campaign against workers, which I suppose Prop 22 was, uh, normally when we look at companies and they're campaigning against workers, they call the workers in to talk with the boss and they threaten this and they threaten that. They have all sorts of tactics, but it seems intuitively perhaps Uber and the ride-sharing companies rolled out a whole new a whole new sort of system of ways of pressuring workers to support Prop 22. Is that right? And I, I don't know, I suppose, I suppose, what's the question here? Um, I suppose the question is, uh, with, I don't know, with, uh, it, it just seems, I suppose, it seems like it's kind of a, a doorway into an, an entry into a whole new sort of realm and uh, realm of, of uh, worker, worker employee contest that was, that was sort of put on display in this campaign. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when I mentioned the clicktivism of sort of the early 2010s, that was revolutionary and sort of terrifying because you can imagine. So what Uber did here right in DC is it was the first time it contacted all of its customer base and said, hey, we don't like this law that's proposed on the books. Write to your council member, show up at council and say, we don't like it. Um, and so we've sort of we're playing around with it but we think that what we're calling that is corporate civil disobedience but it's not and i'll tell you this it's not just uh corporate capture it's right. not just like regulatory entrepreneurship or regulatory art what's that word arbitrage mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's actually something different because it involves people in a mass way and patrick what we've seen out in california is is sort of an extension of that where you know drivers of platforms right and i want to sort of expand this conversation beyond rideshare because it's really about platform workers and that's sort of the phrase i think that many of us are using to think about these because we're not seeing workplace specific protests and organizing we're seeing doordash and instacart and grubhub you know folks are working a across these platforms but b they're also starting to see themselves as having similar interests um, not always and as brian pointed out right it can be varied even within a platform um, but I mean, people were given, you know, stickers to put on bags, you know, for deliveries, all kinds of ways, um, that they have sort of, the workers got involved in the campaigning in ways that, you know, unfortunately the initial sort of legal decisions suggest were fine, but I, uh, I'm not sure about that. Katie, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. As I said, good to see you again. And uh, given uh, given everything that's going on, I suspect uh, we'll have you back on the network. And um, as I said, uh, surely on, on some of these shows. So thanks for all of your work and thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it, Katie Wells. All right, that's going to wrap up our show for today. And uh, we've got a little music as usual to go out. And then uh, just stay tuned and we'll keep you posted on uh, when our next show is. Thanks everybody for watching and thanks to everybody uh, for participating in today's show. So that means uh, over to you, Evan. Walking place, that's right. <laughs>
Can't walk it for you. You got to walk. 